With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to another edition of Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by irishillustrated.com. I'm Pete Sampson, joined with Tim Priester and Tim O'Malley, and we're finally into training camp. The season is here, sort of. Four days in, we saw day one. We'll be back out on the practice field on Thursday and Saturday to watch two full practices. So we did get a pretty deep first impression, I thought, last Friday at Culver Academies. Tim, guys that impressed you, or I think maybe even more stories or developing themes that struck you from day one. Yeah, I think some of the guys that, that jumped out, we touched upon this a little bit in our instant analysis after the game, but clearly Deshaun Kaiser... I mean, he was the most accurate quarterback, period, not just the most accurate of the second and third quarterbacks. He had a really good day throwing football. Did he have a really good day the next day and the day after that? We don't know that for sure. So so we're still speculating a little bit, but we do have a little bit to go on. I mean, clearly Torrey Hunter was a real quality receiver when we saw him on Friday. And I want to say this about Max Redfield, and I think I said this to Tim, this is the Max Redfield that I expected to see two years ago, physically, athletically, the way he moves around the football field. This is the guy, this is the five-star guy that that we expected. So those are some of the guys. I mean, clearly Corey Holmes had a good day catching the football, and then moments later he lined up wrong on the wrong side of the field. So still showing a little bit of youth, but it was encouraging for him to you know, show that he's, uh, he's catching the football well. I think overall the theme I would take away is if, this is probably making a leap with one practice, but if you were to put this roster out there last year with the depth that they've kind of created, I don't think you lose four straight in November. You have enough guys to, I it was an insane rash of injuries, but they have, it seems like there's, before attrition hits, they're stocked enough at every position where you can look at it and say, oh, they'd be fine if they lost one guy. I know we talk about Jerron Jones, obviously that'd be the biggest problem just for the nature of the position, but yeah, I, I like the, we saw a lot of the middle to back end of the roster looking better. And I think we caution a little bit when we say, other than maybe Torrey Hunter, we say a lot of these guys, they're not starting, that we were impressed by the first day. We weren't looking for that. We're, you know, they're not, Corey Holmes isn't breaching that starting lineup. But maybe Hunter gets some more time. I, I never thought last spring Hunter looked anything like this. So I, I think that's a good point with Torrey Hunter. I, I mentioned to you during the spring game, he doesn't do much, and now I now I notice him out there. He's got good size, excuse me, P. Ray. He's got good size for a, a slot receiver. He's six foot 195, which gives him a little bit, you know, a bit more to his game. I, he was great on, on Friday. Yeah, I think what struck me was that Notre Dame, I think, has a backup quarterback now opposed to just a quarterback who fills the second line in Deshaun Kaiser because I going into camp I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for how his game would have progressed. You had heard some things behind the scene that Brian Kelly felt good enough about Kaiser that they were going to still redshirt Wimbush. Now I can sort of see it. Um, I, I can see where Kelly's coming from on that. I think another sort of big picture thing that struck me was I think similar to 2012, there are some really high level guys at the top of the roster, whether it be Teo versus Jalen, um, you know, Sheldon versus Tuit, um, you know, you got Will Fuller, TJ Jones. 
you know, Martin Stanley. But I think what's just going to separate this team from 2012, and I'm not saying they're going to go 12 and 0, is that that next group of guys is way better than I think what they had in 2012. I think that the you know the if you looked at the top 22 guys on the roster, I think once you get from eight to 20, I think that's a better group this year yeah. than what they had in 2012. And I think that builds on O'Malley's point that if they do get hit with a bunch of injuries and the season potentially goes sideways a little bit, that it's not going to go in the tank like it did last year. Well, here's the thing, and I, and I mentioned this in the instant analysis after practice on Friday. Rochelle, last year at this time, he was a stopgap measure because uh, uh, Ishak Williams was gone. Trombetti has experience. Aquara had just moved to defensive end. Jerron Jones, we had no idea what Jerron Jones could do. He showed some flashes a year before but started to put together. We didn't know what Joe Schmidt could do. James Anawalu, I'm not sure that he's proven, but at least now he's had a year at the position. Cole Luke, thought he was good, hadn't played. Max Redfield, thought he could be really good. I'm not sure he's reached that level yet in game competition, but what we saw on on, uh, on Friday was really, really encouraging. Will Fuller wasn't an All-American. No, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's probably the best example. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even on my top 25 players <laughs> yeah. on the entire roster. He'll make uh, it this year when that gets released. I would agree, yeah. I would agree Pete, that I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to go 12 and 0. I'm, but I will sit here and say they could. They have the capabilities. Yeah. With a, I think that's a good point about the front line players matching the marquee players of 2012, and just just the depth. Though you look at the defensive line, all those guys except Tillery, and Tillery was very impressive in the spring as an early entry. All those guys have playing experience. They didn't have playing experience. On their first defensive line last year, let alone second defensive line. Yeah, I mean, there are two guys that struck me as individuals uh, outside of Kaiser. One was Hunter, which Tim already talked about, but also Romeo Aquara. Tim, you've written in the past that he's been sort of a skinny 250, and some people have been like, what are you talking about? He looks great. But now he he, he is a filled There's out a 270 style. now. Yeah. Uh, he looks like a much more intimidating player, and just... I think football IQ has always been a question there. Like, is he just was not around the football a whole lot? And on Friday, at least, he was around the ball a whole lot, and that's that's a change. I thought he still looked slim at two sixty. He's now at two seventy, and I don't see the same player. That's a much bigger, stronger football player. You know, there was some recruiting news. I think since our last podcast, uh, Ian Book, three star quarterback out of Northern California, committed to Notre Dame. A little bit of a surprise, uh, I think, for people who follow Notre Dame recruiting, just because this was not somebody that was really on the public radar at all. There's a connection to Mike Sanford at Boise State, where Sanford had offered and recruited Book pretty heavily to Boise State before taking the job at Notre Dame. Um, you watch his film a little bit. My first takeaway was this is a, a rich man's Tommy Reese uh, in terms of the jersey number, but also the, oh, deli- the, 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 the delivery <laughs> But I think the arm strength is a little bit better. The mobility is a little better. Tim, you did a deeper dive into his film, though. Yeah, I, I like him, and and we've seen this a thousand times through the years. If he were six foot three, he'd be a four star quarterback. I mean, he he, I love his delivery. Um, it's really really quick and tight, but it's not short arm. Um, he could he has a really good feel moving around in the pocket. His accuracy is very good. His arm strength is very good. I think the greatest concern that I have, in addition to the height, and that's the least of the concerns um, if you list them, and that is the ability, and this is where Tommy Reese really struggled. This is the comparison I would make to Tommy Reese. That burst away from an edge rusher, that ability to make that first, second, third step to really burst away from a 
275-pound fast monster of a, a, an athlete. I'm not sure that he has that, and so that can lead to some sacks. But I, I like the pickup. They needed another quarterback. You, you could, I mean, I, I can see Ian Book developing, and they could win with him. There will be other quarterbacks on the roster with better dimensions and just better overall physical talent. But you can win with Ian Book if you're surrounding him with good players. I, I find it interesting. I, I, you either subscribe to the theory that you need a quarterback in every class or you don't. And with these three guys, next year it'll be Zaire two years left, Kaiser three years left, and probably Wimbush four years left. On, in theory, you don't need one in 16 if you're going after a top dog in 17, but one's, it's rare that all those guys I had named would, would be around for that entire time. Too. And like, there's just no way Brian Kelly has not been emotionally scarred from his first year here when he had no quarterback. So he's seen how bad it can get if things go wrong with a starter and everything is put on that guy. I mean, it... it I mean, it took Brian Kelly basically four years to dig out of the quarterback hole that was left uh, by Charlie Weiss, and some of that digging was done by Brian Kelly. But that's a position where you probably can't have too many guys, and you'd rather have a fourth quarterback yeah. than a seventh linebacker. And, and, and I think here's a real key point with Book, and I would never say never because anybody can transfer, but it was obvious that once Notre Dame pulled the trigger on him, he was going to come to Notre Dame. Chances are he won't transfer, which I don't know that you can say that about any of the other quarterbacks. Right. So you have that building block that should stay in place. And again, I think it's a guy that if you surround him with a good offensive line, quality running game, and good receivers, which Nordam has now and should continue to get, you can win with him. All right. Well, that's it for segment one on Irish Illustrated Insider. We'll come back with segment two. We've got a bunch of questions from our readers, so stick around. Segment two of Irish Illustrated Insider is our question segment, starting with Irish 2001. What is a realistic expectation for this defense in year two under Brian Van Gorder and with the experience coming back? How important is Joe Schmidt? Sorry, Pete. How important is Joe Schmidt in allowing BVG to open the playbook? I mean, Joe Schmidt's critical to that. I don't think he will be the only guy who understands the defense this year, which will be a, a big improvement. And I've been talking to a bunch of the players about sort of Fangor 2.0. And sort of the feedback they're getting is he's much more open to a give and take with the players than he was last year when it was just, this is the way it is. And Jalen Smith admitted that guys were sort of scared to sort of pull the cord and say, hey, could we stop and go over that again? Um that's not the case anymore. So I think just big picture, that's a positive. Realistic expectations for this defense. You know, is it going to be 2012? No. Uh, can it be a top 30 defense? Yeah, I think so. There's definitely enough material for that. I think realistically, look at the defense. <clears throat> you have about six average offenses you face. If you figure Texas, Virginia, Temple, BC, Stanford. I don't know where you want to put Pitt because they have a couple yeah, of and uh, UMass can sling it. So, yeah, yeah, but that, you, you got to them you gotta be able to, you got to be able to beat UMass yeah, no matter right. what. I think you got to hold those average offenses that's twenty and under, and you have the offense where if you play Tech, Clemson, USC, <laughs> we throw Navy in there, hold them to high twenties. Yeah, high twenties, and you can win those games. That, yeah. That's realistic. That is, I, I think I think Diaco like numbers is realistic, excluding two thousand twelve, and most of his numbers were. We're good, uh, you know, low 20s. I, I think that's realistic. And, again, it's it's all about 
it's all about the depth that you now have if you do have injuries. Pete or Tim, either if they hold them to that, you know, the Yucca would hold teams to 20, 21 points a game on average. What do you think the ceiling is for the team then? I'm telling you that they hold teams at 21 points per game. Oh, they're 12 and 0. I mean, that's yeah, that's if, that's very if, very realistic. If, if no one hits thirty, no, them, I'm saying someone's going to score six. You know, so, yeah, so yeah, yeah, you're in, someone's going to score a couple. But it's like if if they don't go over thirty two, thirty three mm-hmm. points a game, like I mean, it's an individual game, right. then they have they have an excellent chance to go twelve and zero. Because I, I mean, that's if they're if they're holding teams to twenty points a game. I mean, at worst case, this is a ten and two team. I mean, yeah. it's. That, that would be the absolute floor. Yeah, I agree. And when I say Diaco, I mean numbers, not approach. Because right, right. obviously the approach is going to be vastly different. I That's think Kamari Russell is excited about. As he mentioned on uh, Friday, it was like, yeah, yeah I, I like I like Bab Diac- Diaco's defense, but uh, this Brian Van Gorder's defense isn't yeah. really going to let me do what I, what I do yeah, best. No doubt. And if you thought Van Gorder was aggressive last year, I think it just gets ramped right. up just with the knowledge base that, that, that so many players now have. All right, question two. Fresh 1619, do you think the players are buying into the culture over scheme as a rallying cry, or is it just coach speak? I think, look, at the beginning of camp, they're buying into things because they were humbled last year. Uh, They have veterans that realize they're better players than they showed last year in November. They were young guys then. And as we've mentioned many times, they have more more leaders than they have, than they're going to have captains. They have a lot more leaders than they're going to have captains. But to look at any of the buying into culture over scheme, you don't know until they are down 10 nothing at Virginia because something fluky <laughs> happened. You know what I mean? That's when you realize yeah, if they buy into it or because Georgia Tech can't stop scoring and you have to keep scoring and then Malik Zaire doesn't blink. That's that's when you know if they've bought into things. Not, not now. I, I think the phrase is a little misinterpreted on the outside and partly because I'm not sure that it's the exact phrase that they're trying to capture, um, culture over scheme. It doesn't mean... Did I say culture? Culture over scheme. Culture over scheme. <laughs> it doesn't mean scheme doesn't matter. I, I, I think more of it, it it's the, the word culture. And, and it stems back from, you know, the sports psychologist that has been working with the Notre Dame teams. It, it, it certainly was beneficial to the Notre Dame men's basketball team. And having covered the, the baseball team up close, that completely, that attitude completely transformed that program. And, and that attitude is... You know, and it's something Brian Kelly, Brian Kelly has touched on before. Not too high, not too low. You know, roll with the punches. We're never out of the game. There's nothing that happens in a game that we can't handle. Don't panic. Stay with it. Don't get too high when things are good either. So it's more of a philosophy, and I'm not sure that the phrase culture over scheme captures it because it suggests that, well, our culture, you know, nobody's scheme can beat us. And I think that gets under people's saddle because, Navy, <laughs> you know, and some schemes sure. that have hurt them. And I, and I think maybe on the outside, we're, we're misinterpreting it a little bit. Well, I think most importantly, they just needed to change something from last year because all the things you mentioned about roll with the punches, don't get high, don't get too high, don't get too low. You know, when you get hit with adversity, don't blink. Notre Dame failed in all that in November. Right. They blinked. They, you know, some would say they quit at USC. I mean, that, that was a team that totally lost it down the stretch. So, they needed to change something, and I think it's not so much like a cute T-shirt that can come out with. It's just like, okay, remember what happened last year. Let's not do that again. That's, I think, the, the bigger issue. Chai Domer 73 asks, with Schmidt and Grace back, I don't hear Niles Morgan's name nearly as much as, you, as say, November of 2014. I love his athletic upside, but 
How would you describe a fan's reasonable expectation for his 2015 season? I think it's a good question because I'm not sure that we know. Yeah, I don't either. I, I think it's a, a learning year for Morgan. Uh, probably sort of an extension of what last year should have been until mm. Schmidt got hurt. And I think that's that's fine. I mean, he'll be on all the special teams units. And, I mean, look, Grace is coming off a catastrophic injury. Schmidt is coming off a catastrophic injury. There's not a whole lot that would make you think that they wouldn't be susceptible to another one. Um, you just don't know. And so Morgan has to be ready, uh, but they're not going to have to – build the defense around him. I would be curious to see if they can bump Schmidt over to Will, Jalen Smith over to Sam, and then you get Niles Morgan on the field with Jalen and Joe. I think that's probably the best way for him to learn is to do it, but have two real experienced guys right next to him. Yeah, I think that's the ideal, but I also think you you can rotate enough good linebackers into a game in situations too. I think I mean I think Jarrett Grace will be more involved against Navy than he will be against USC. I, you know, I think you might need Niles Morgan's speed at Clemson a little bit more than some of the other guys. And if Joe Schmidt's right, he's not coming off that often. It, it, we, we know that from last year. But you could still get Morgan in the game, it, it, as Pete pointed out. Jalen is going to shift outside at, at times. I, I like the idea of Morgan not having to start, even, even though I like the Morgan-Smith-Schmidt lineup. I mean, I like Smith, Onowalu, and Schmidt, too. So I, I think it's this is... They talk about a good problem to have. You can work them in. It's not. It's not that hard. The the only, I guess, the toughest part is that Jalen Smith's not coming off, and Joe Schmidt shouldn't come off very often. But you 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 need more than that during the course of the year. These guys. I mean, there's people. They could point. Someone's getting hurt. It's it's a it's just no yeah, way it or not will to happen, it. especially when you're playing two option teams. You know, the other day we commented about Joe Schmidt. They're they're in nickel. Farley comes off the field. It's not Joe Schmidt that leaves because of lack of athleticism. It's on a while, which is, I mean, on the surface, that's kind of surprising that you're taking, you're putting a good athlete or a good defender on the field and taking a good athlete off and you keep Joe Schmidt on the field. But Joe Schmidt's not going to come off the field very often. And certainly Jalen Smith isn't. Yeah. I mean, that's how it worked at the beginning of last season. On a while would come off. Farley would come on. I think, but I, I think we do have to acknowledge that like, under Brian Kelly, they haven't rotated linebackers. No, they had really a Fox Calabrese and they had a Fox Calabrese Grace, but like when Spawn was here, it was all Spawn, and then it was Jalen Smith. It was all Jalen Smith. Princhembo never came out. It just was. They stuck with their the guy who started was that, the guy who was finished. That, you say Kelly was that? That's yeah. Diaco. That's a Diaco decision. More that could than, be. Yeah. I mean, in terms of personnel, but it's like even even last year until they had to rotate. You know, the lineup was the lineup. There wasn't a whole yeah. lot of variety to it. You couldn't put in Morgan over Schmidt for any reason last year, though. At this point, at least, you're hoping you could put... I guess Schmidt's a bad example, because if, as we said, if he's back to MVP level, you're that valid, much value to the team on the field, he doesn't come out much. But, I mean, I, I look at Grace, this is too early to say, I look at Grace as a guy that helps you a lot in certain situations. I think when it's first and goal with Stanford at the five-yard line, I want him in instead of Niles Morgan. I want Jarrett Grace to go hit someone that's coming to hit him, and yeah. that's what he's there for. It's unfortunate that he was derailed the way yeah. it was because I thought he was definitely trending up. He was trending up in the Arizona State game where, right. he actually, right. where he was actually injured. So, I mean, it's unfortunate. Brian Kelly has said there are plenty of – I mean, he was insistent in saying there are plenty of reps available because they don't always line up the conventional Mike Will-Sam – uh, and, and you see that all the time. I thought it was interesting the other day that you, you know, you would see they worked a lot of pre-snap stuff. It was the first day, and so it was a lot of pre-snap stuff. And Joe Schmidt's voices could be heard all over. And there's a shift 
by the offense, and Anawalu drops drops back into the middle of the field, and Jalen Smith is on the edge. You know, so I mean, there's going to be an, an exchange with athletes on a regular basis. You give Brian Van Gorder an opportunity to scheme even more in the second year, I think he's going to take advantage of it. Next up, Suture, what can we expect from Drew Tranquil this year? Is he more of a linebacker or a safety? I think he's more of a box safety or linebacker. I, my favorite role for Drew Tranquil, and this doesn't mean to minimize him going forward, is I loved him in that dime linebacker situation early last year before he had to move to safety because of all the issues they had with communication. I don't see him... Being a post-safety, a free safety, I don't like him in coverage downfield. I love that guy going forward laterally. He was stalking quarterbacks as that dime linebacker. It's a great role, and I think for this year, you can expect him to be a backup safety that plays on every special teams, and he'll find his way into that dime role again. Again, I think this is a, on the outside looking in, we kind of misinterpret this a little bit. Drew Tranquil isn't starting at safety last year unless there's an injury. Drew Tranquil, in that dime role that you were mentioning, Tim, was really, really good and a difference maker and a guy that could rush the quarterback and a guy that could cover underneath. So we get caught up. That would be like getting caught up in what's, what position Matthias Farley is listed at, although he was getting second-team reps at, at safety the other day. Drew Tranquil is an in-the-box player. An in-the-box <laughs> player, exactly. Whatever position you call it, he's not. No, is do you want him as your starting safety? No, you don't, but if... If you have some health, and now that you have some depth, he's not going to be in that situation. I like, you know, once Farley's out of here this year, I think that's Tranquil's role. Absolutely. I think he'll be that nickelback slot type defender. Uh, Dashing Domer asks, how do you feel about the news Mike Mayak won't be doing the NBC broadcast anymore? I hate it. I, I He brought so much entertainment and information and knowledge to those broadcasts that are it's going to go away now. I, I don't enjoy... Doug Flutie's style of announcing. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody at Notre Dame about this, and they said, hey, you know, we loved Mayock, and we thought Mayock loved us. And he, so it sounds like he was pretty easy for Notre Dame to work with. Um, for my money, I have, like, sort of Herb Street is the best out there because I think he appeals to all audiences, and Mayock is right below him. You know, his, I think, appeal is... You know, a little bit more wonky and a little bit more schematical, which I think is great. I can understand why not everyone thinks that's amazing, but I think NBC's broadcast takes a takes a big step backward without him. I saw the fans' biggest lament for Mayock, and it would be removed from this no matter what, uh, is that they find him rooting for the other team or looking for a storyline for the other team. But, and the reason I say we're removed from that completely is we watch the game after knowing who won, so it doesn't matter what somebody says about a certain play, and it is probably right. But I don't know. I've, I've never – I mean, I, I never – care about an announcer that's accurate being critical that's that's the way it should be i i I can't stand the lame amateurish cheerleading for a football game there's nothing worse than that uh i'm gonna miss mayock i I, he's you listen you do film reviews of this and you watch this guy he he sees it happen immediately as it happens i mean it's incredible he doesn't need the replay to tell you what happened and I, i thought he did a great job it's i think it's gonna look amateurish Without him, and I understand that people, when they're emotionally invested in a game, like if they're super frustrated that Pittsburgh might beat Notre Dame and destroy an undefeated season, that they could hold a grudge. You know, Mayock was rooting for Pitt or whatever, saying this is fun. It was fun. It, it, it's it's a sport where you're looking at the, that was a lot more fun than watching a thirty-eight nothing game if you're announcing it. So I mean, that's that's what you're there for is is to talk about what's going on. I think Flutie has more insight than we give him credit for. I think we'll find that as it goes on, but he's not. He's not Mayock, and, and, and he's dry, and he's not going to have nearly as many insights as Mayock did. 
I think the notion that Mayak was cheering against Notre Dame is a bunch of crap. That's that that that's that that's a fan reaction to being caught up in the heat of the moment of the game. He's just analyzing the game. That man. is when they watch it, though, during the heat of the moment. No, you're game. right. You're yeah. right. I'm not. I'm not yeah. criticizing those that that react that way to it. I just think that that's not that's not what he's doing. I think you're reacting because of the emotion of the moment, and I understand that. But you know, there it, there was at the end of the was it the Louisville game when Mac was really really tough on Golson. I thought he was nor- one of those two. Where it he was Northwestern. Northwest yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought he went over the line a little bit, a little you know, at that moment. But whatever, his body, his body, his body of work is has been outstanding and will continue to be, and the NFL will simply benefit from it. Yeah. All right. We got our last question from PM Moore, nineteen ninety five. What the heck happened with Wole Batiku? He went from talking about visiting to committing to UCLA and off the market in 24 hours. Where in the world does Notre Dame go for defensive end targets now? Answer your own question, Pete. Well, he committed to UCLA because they were always the leader, uh, but the timing definitely was a surprise because he had talked about taking official visits. Notre Dame was going to be one of them. Um, But, I mean, he told Anna Hickey uh, over the summer at the opening that he prefers a warm weather destination, and... Doesn't get much better than UCLA for that. So, I mean, where does Notre Dame go with defensive ends? I think they have just have to keep grinding away with more guys like Adeo Gondeje. And then, you know, can you get in the mix with another top guy at this point? Probably not. But, if, you know, you, you had to look at where they were. Let's look at where they were at quarterback last year at this time. It was kind of shambolic. Blake Barnett was off the board. Brandon Wimbush was still committed to Penn State. And they figured out how to make that work. Can they do that at defensive end? They really have not um, since Brian Kelly's been here, other than one class. But I, but I think that the ideal, the new ideal for Brian Kelly is probably the way the sophomore class shook out, where you just take four, five, six guys, and then hope they develop and work out. Um, you know, and I think we're sort of seeing that with Jay Hayes, Trombetti, Blankenship. Um, you know, on the uptick, Bonner I think is intriguing. Colin Hill is out. Johnny Williams is out. I mean, there was uh, they had another guy who was committed, Matt Dickerson, who ended up sort of flipping out to to UCLA due to a family issue. I think that's what Notre Dame is going to have to do with defensive line moving forward. They're just going to have to throw stuff against, throw recruits against the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> Notre Dame. So to speak. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why Gilmore was hired as a defensive line coach because this is a guy with a reputation of developing linemen. And and it, you know, it, hey, it's better than what it used to be, where you go after all the four and five star defensive ends. You don't get any of them, so you don't have any defensive ends. It's not ideal. You know, you, you hate to look and say, well, he's a project and it's going to take three years before he contributes. But you have to make an adjustment, and Brian Kelly has made that adjustment. And I think part of that is is hiring Gilmore um, as a defensive line coach. Well, we are uh, – that's it for today. We are um, – uh, the team is still in Culver. We'll remain in Culver through Wednesday. And then we have practices on Thursday and Saturday, of which we will be able to watch – in their entirety, so that will give us uh, some, some more to comment on after uh, last Friday's practice. Pete, anything you want to add? I think that's a wrap for the latest Irish Illustrated Insider. We'll be back on August 17th. Thanks for listening. <laughs>